Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is our old buddy Mark Weisbrod. He is the, uh, the big cheese over at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, the co-director. Uh, he's also the president of Just Foreign Policy, the author of several books. His most recent failed, but the experts got wrong about the global economy. CEPR.net is their website. And Mark, welcome back. Uh, Bolivia. Evo Morales is out, but progressive policies may be back in. First of all, for people who are not, you know, who don't follow the situation in in South America and Bolivia, the country of Bolivia and the continent of South America, for people who aren't following that, give us a a, a real quick thumbnail backgrounder and then bring us up to date. Sure. Well, Evo Morales was the first indigenous president of Bolivia, and it's the most indigenous part percent of population country in the in the hemisphere it's somewhere near a majority of the population is indigenous and he was elected in 2005 and took office in january 2006 and he was there all the way till the end of 2019 in november of 2019 well he was overthrown in a coup where the military told him to uh, step down to resign and I have to emphasize that because it's you know you see there's reports in the media and they don't even most of them don't even refer to it as a coup some of them do and mm. and it was a coup that was backed by the Trump administration and it was also engineered to a large part in at least the foundations of it were made by the Organization of American States which sent an electoral observer mission to the country which is supposed to observe the election that they had on October 20th. But instead, they lied about it and promoted this idea that it was stolen. And that became the political foundation for the coup. And then there was a de facto repressive uh, government for the past 11 months. But after there were big uh, protests in the streets that shut down highways and everything, the de facto government was forced to actually have an election on Sunday. And there, the finance minister or the economy minister of Evo Morales, his name is Luis Arce, ran for president and he won in the election on Sunday. So that's a huge thing. It was a little unexpected because the polls showed that he was in the lead, that he wouldn't get enough to win the first round, but he did win in the first round. But he clearly did at this point, although the votes are still being counted. There's quick counts that show that he he won by a large margin, probably over 20 percentage points. And so this is a major uh, turnaround of a U.S.-backed coup against a left government. And that has a lot of significance for the whole hemisphere, which we can talk about if you want. Yeah, as both an economist and a fairly astute political observer, particularly of this region, Mark Weisbrot, what does this say to you about, well, first of all, U.S. foreign policy? Why is it that we keep overthrowing leftist governments that are not, you know, embracing Castro-style communism? 
although even Castro is no longer the Castro government, but I mean, even the, the current government of Cuba is no longer embracing Castro style. You know, they're allowing free enterprise on the island. But, you know, why do we keep doing that? And I mean, who are the interest groups behind this? Why would the United States interfere in the affairs of a foreign country to prevent them from having as I you know, my sense of it was that, you know, Morales was just basically building out a a Denmark style government, not a uh, not a Cuba style government. Or do I have that wrong? No, it was a social and will continue to be, hopefully. I mean, there's no reason to think that our state would do differently. It's the same part. But it's like democratic socialism, uh, right? The movement for socialism, yeah. It's it's a social democratic system where it's a mixed economy, like almost every economy in the world is a mixture of state and uh, and market. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, I mean, it it isn't that, uh, you know, there's nothing radical or even, you know, threatening in any other way, as you could imagine, a country of, uh, you know, 11.5 million people in South America that's a lower middle-income country uh, posing a threat to the United States. I mean, you know, none of the excuses that you see, you know, you don't even make excuses, they just deny it. But I mean, you know, the U.S. has intervened, the U.S. government has intervened in almost really almost all of the countries the left governments that were elected in the 21st century you know argentina bolivia brazil haiti honduras nicaragua paraguay and of course venezuela more than anywhere and was that the monroe doctrine that if it happens in this hemisphere it's it's our affair well i mean i think the that you do have a consensus in the so-called national security state, or what you know Ben Rhodes <laughs> called the civil society equivalent of it. Ben Rhodes was mm-hmm. Obama's uh, uh, advisor, and he right. he called it the blob. And the consensus in the blob, which includes you know most of the media and the big uh, think tanks, which most of them get government U.S. government funding and anyway. The consensus is that this is this belongs to the United States. They don't even really think about it right. that much. They don't think so. So, what are the of, implications? You, you forgive me for moving along here, Mark, but we just have two minutes until we're going to hit a break. You mentioned the implications of Bolivia flipping essentially back to a democratic socialist or social democratic government. What does that mean for the rest of South America? Well, I think it's very important because. It could be tremendously important because in the 21st century, you had for the first time the majority of the population of Latin America was governed by left of center governments, social democratic governments like this one to varying degrees. I mean, some, they all had different sets of reforms, public investment. They, you know, for for example, they drastically increased the public investment. They invested more. These governments invested more in health care. The one that I mentioned just now in terms of where the U.S. intervened, they invested more in education. And they did the things that you would expect uh, social democratic middle-income countries to, to do. But it varied by country because some they had different needs. And they had, you know, different capacities. And so some are at a, a more industrial stage of development, for example, Argentina, was more developed than the you know most of the others in terms of manufacturing, but the point is right. that they all were a reflection of what the voters really wanted. After a long-term, uh, terrible, almost unprecedented economic failure from uh, 1980 to 2000, it sounds you like finish you, your thought. So that's what they did, and the United States government strategy under both the Bush and Obama administrations that violently under Trump was to get rid of all of them as much as they could. Containment and roll. Mark, I got to wrap it up, but thank you so much. Hang on just a second, Mark. We're going to get stepped on here. the Tom Hartman Program. Mark Weisbrot, the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's got a piece coming out about this in uh, The Nation magazine. You can check it out and uh, CEPR.net. Thank you, Mark. Thanks.
Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Two weeks from today is the day that we begin officially counting the votes. Uh, some, some states are counting mail-in ballots right now, and early voting for that matter, but they're not providing us with any results. You know, it could take a month for us to find out what happened in this election, but uh, two weeks from today. It's amazing. Heads up, there's an amazing new movie on Netflix. Louise and I watched it Sunday night. Sean watched it Saturday we, we were talking yesterday, and we were all like, wow, what an amazing movie. Aaron Sorkin, Sasha Baron Cohen, etc." It's The Trial of the Chicago 7 over on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix subscription, really worth the effort. And also, just, I mean, this is just kind of, you know, random news that I want to share with you, and then we'll get into some of the real meaty stuff here. But also, yesterday, Louise got a call. Actually, she got three calls from three different numbers, and all had this pre-recorded message saying, your Apple iCloud account has been compromised. Press 1 to correct the, you know, whatever. And Sean got one from somebody saying, your social security number has a suspicious activity on it. Uh, please, uh, you know, press 1 to talk to an operator. If you get one of these calls, these are called phishing calls, PH, phishing with PH. And you know, basically what will happen is you push one and they'll say, oh, yeah, we've got we've got your account right here, uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Please spell your name for me so I've got this correct and, and give me your, uh, your password for your account so that we can reset it. And then, boom, you've lost everything. Now, they do this with banks. They do it with Social Security. They do it with iCloud. They do it with whatever that drive is, the cloud-based drive that Microsoft is offering. Be very careful. There's, there's some really nasty stuff going on right now. It's sort of like, you know, I've gotten, I'm averaging now between six and 10 fundraising emails. I got four of them this morning from the Trump campaign and people affiliated with it. These guys are squeezing the last pennies out of their supporters. And and when you consider, you know, the average age of a Fox News viewer is 70 or 71, uh, there have to be some people who are, you know, in their 80s or maybe even their 90s who are struggling with cognitive issues. And every time they get one of these emails, they just click the button and donate another hundred bucks. I think Trump and his buddies are just loading up. They're getting as much cash as they can. I mean, there's, there's all these people who are just totally baffled by what Trump is doing. Uh, you know, the, for example, this, uh, the headline over on Raw Story by Brad Reed was titled, Trump is committing political suicide in waning days of campaign. They were quoting uh, Ari Berman, who was a guest on MSNBC or CNN. I guess it was CNN. And, you know, he was pointing out that Trump had said, you know, I, if I listened to the scientists, the government, the country would be in a depression right now. I'm not going to, you know, Biden, he'll listen to the scientists. Ari Berman is like, this is political suicide. Why is he doing this? I'll tell you why he's doing this. He's lining up his customers for next year. Whether he's going to be selling products, whether he's going to be selling, you know, come stay in my hotels, whether he's going to be selling watch me on my new TV network if he starts or buys, you know, one of these third-rate right-wing TV networks. There's a half a dozen of them out there now. Or... Or, you know, whether he gets another gig with Mark Burnett and NBC to do another reality show, which I think is, frankly, probably the most likely in that hierarchy of possibilities. He's lining up his customers. Why is Trump doing these rallies all over the country? There's super spreader events. This is crazy. This is not how you run for the White House. He's making horrible mistakes. No, he's the guy is a salesman. He's been a salesman his whole entire life. He's a salesman who lies with ease and facility. I mean, just just put this in context, right? I mean, that's why he ran for the presidency in the first place, because he was making less than Gwen Stefani. When he discovered that Gwen Stefani was making a million bucks, a, uh, you know, an episode or season or whatever it was more than he was from NBC, and he had better ratings. That's when he decided to run for president. Michael Cohen lays the whole story out in his book. 
He decided to run for president in order to, to basically convince NBC that he was a bigger star and, and was deserving of more money. He never wanted to win. He never expected to win. He didn't expect to get the Republican nomination, which is kind of a sad commentary on the Republican electorate. And now we've got this situation where the Supreme Court, in a four-to-four decision, a deadlock decision, let stand a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court which said that as long as a ballot is postmarked by election day, it can be counted for up to three days afterwards. Which kind of makes sense, right? Particularly when Louis DeJoy and, and Trump's other, you know, goons on the postal board of postal governors have been doing everything they can to wreck the post office in order to slow down the mail. You know, the other half of that strategy was literally Republican lawyers went to court and sued sued the state of Pennsylvania and said, you can't count any ballots after Tuesday. You can't count any more ballots that come in the mail, even if they're postmarked before Election Day. And the state Supreme Court said, no, we're going to let people, you know, the mail is running slow. We're going to, you know, as long as you've mailed your ballot before Election Day, you obviously voted before Election Day, we will count your ballot afterwards, even if it comes in up to three days after, after the election. But what's interesting about this is that John Roberts joined the three liberals, which meant that it was a four to four tie. The four conservatives, Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and Gorsuch and, and Biff, beer bong Biff, the four of them, Kavanaugh, of course, uh, the four of them said, uh, no, Pennsylvania shouldn't be counting ballots, even if they're postmarked before Election Day. They shouldn't do that. And had Amy Coney Barrett been on the court, that's probably the way it would have gone. But right now, people in Pennsylvania are going to be able to, to get their votes counted, which is, you know, it's a good thing. But what we're looking at here is the, is the end game of 40 years of Republican voter suppression. I mean, this really went on steroids in 2000 when Jeb Bush and his brother George, governors of Florida and Texas respectively, when George W. Bush gave Jeb the felon list for Texas and Jeb purged Florida voters based on the Texas felon list. Lots of Hispanic names, lots of African-American names. 90,000 African-Americans in Florida purged from the voting rolls. And, you know, in case after case after case, I've shared these numbers with you before. Hillary Clinton won, according to the exit polls, in Florida in 2016. Although the official polls showed that Trump won. She won in North Carolina. She won in Pennsylvania. She won in Wisconsin, according to the exit polls. So why were the official results off? Because hundreds of thousands of people in those four states have been purged from the voting rolls. So they went in and they voted, but they were given provisional ballots, which are only counted if there's a lawsuit. And so their votes never got counted. The Republicans have been doing this forever. It's called redshift, and it only happens in states with Republican secretaries of state, by and large. I mean, the real contest right now is not between Republicans and Democrats or between Trump and Biden. It's between those people who believe in a democracy, everyone's vote should count and be counted, and those people who don't, those people who think that, you know, only basically, you know, affluent white people in the suburbs who only have to wait five minutes to vote, only their votes should be counted. So when this election is over, we've got some serious work to do. And our first project needs to be to establish a firm, irre irrevocable right for every American citizen to vote. So that when governments, when Republican-controlled governments try to take away your vote, they have to go to court and prove their case. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I guess the question, you know, will American elections ever be legitimate? And, and what do you think about my theory about Trump, that he's just lining up customers right now he's, and using our, our taxpayer dollars to do it? You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. A few other things here in the news that I wanted to share with you. 
A federal judge on Sunday formally struck down the Trump administration attempt to end food stamp benefits for nearly 700,000 unemployed people. Let that sink in. Sonny Perdue, the Agriculture Department, and Donald Trump, the Trump administration, notified whoever they notify that they were going to end food stamp benefits at the end of this year for 700,000 people. Almost a million people. All of them getting those benefits because they are unemployed. And the chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell, she is an appointee of the Obama administration. She's an Obama appointee. She said no. In fact, she condemned the Agriculture Department. She said, at issue in this litigation, the rule radically and abruptly alters decades of regulatory practice, leaving states scrambling and exponentially increasing food insecurity for tens of thousands of Americans. The Agriculture Department, this is what the judge wrote. The Agriculture Department, quote, has been icily silent about how many adults have been denied SNAP benefits had the changes sought been in effect when the pandemic rapidly spread across the country. Speaking of of Sonny Perdue and the Department of Agriculture, which administers the food stamp program, their utter failure to address the issue renders the agency action arbitrary and capricious. So what did the Agriculture Department do? They said, well, yeah, this is a district court, right? And this is an Obama appointee. Let's take it to an appeals court where there's lots and lots of Trump appointees. So 700,000 people are getting food stamps right now because they're on unemployment. And Trump is literally going to court to try to cut them off, which is mind boggling. At the same time, these guys are trying to cut off long term unemployment. You'll recall, you know, I mean, we used to have long-term unemployment that was more or less unlimited. And then some of the reforms, I think, during the Clinton administration cut it down to a couple of years. Then it got cut down to two years. And then it got cut down to one year, as I recall, during the Bush administration. And so for a lot of Americans who lost their jobs in February, March, April. And by the way, some states don't even have one year. Some states choose to take federal money to support unemployment for a much shorter period of time. In some states, it's six months or nine months. So what's starting to happen right now and is going to happen in a much bigger way in January, February, and March of next year, which, keep in mind, is just four, five, six months down the road, is that millions and millions of Americans... We get 30 million Americans on unemployment right now. As many as half of them could simply lose all their benefits. And if you no longer qualify for unemployment benefits, in many states, you no longer qualify for food stamps. 20%, one in five black children in America, or one in five black African-American families in America have children in their family who, are, who do not have access to enough food. Now, this is also true in poor white communities in Appalachia, places like that. The numbers are not quite as severe as a percentage of the population, but the raw numbers are probably very similar. It's a massive problem in Hispanic communities, particularly Hispanic communities that may have intermingling in their communities, people who are here not as legal residents or as citizens of the United States, who may be even more reluctant to apply for any kind of federal assistance. But from the Republican point of view, ah, to hell with them. Screw them all. Meanwhile, in the next year, this is the headline over at Forbes. You know the business magazine? The headline, Trump will have $900 million of loans coming due in his second term if he's reelected. $900 million. Trump's interests in 555 California Street and 1290 Avenue of the Americas are the two most valuable holdings in his entire portfolio. Right now, the California skyscraper is encumbered with a loan of an estimated $541 million, expiring in September of 2021, September of next year. These properties have a combined $1.5 billion in debt against them. Trump's share of that is that $447 million as a limited partner. And that doesn't at all get into his other loans on his other properties. I mean, that's just, that's just uh, one of many. They go through this Forbes article, goes through a great length. Trump is a billion dollars in debt. 
And as far as anybody can tell, he has no way of paying it back. What he's been doing for the last decade is he's been borrowing to pay off previous debts. He can't do that anymore. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from Robert Draper's book, When the Tea Party Came to Town. And it was actually the original title of this book when it first came out was called Do Not Ask What Good We Do. And this is the only book that tells the story of how the Republicans got together the night that Barack Obama was being inaugurated and decided that for the next four or eight years, they were going to do everything they could to destroy our first black president's presidency. And so I'm reading from the prologue. And he's talking about how Frank Luntz had organized that dinner that I was just mentioning. And he was very happy about that. The dinner tables were set in a square. This was at the Caucus Room restaurant in a private dining room. It was a little restaurant down at the corner of 9th and D Street. The dinner tables were set in a square at Luntz's request so that everyone could see each other and talk freely. He asked that Gingrich speak first. Gingrich was happy to oblige. And, you know, it goes on through this. Pete Huckstra said, so we're in the depths. And then we get right into it. This was their plan. You know, what their party had done from 94 to 2000, what the Democrats had done from 2006 and 2008, the Republicans would once do again. 
They would take back the House in November 2010. Then they would use the House as the Republican spear point to mortally wound President Obama in 2011. They would do this and take retake the House and the Senate in 2012. Uh, they would do all this, but only if the American voter blessed them to do so. It made no sense. They all agreed to attack Obama personally. He was too popular. Got to be about ideas, said Eric Cantor. Democrats now controlled everything, and we're already with a monstrously priced economic stimulus package showing their true colors. Given time, they'd screw things up, as the GOP had. But, said Paul Ryan, everyone's got to stick together. Ryan, a 38-year-old Wisconsin congressman and numbers fetishist, it was shiny earnestness recalled in Ozzy and Harriet America. Ryan hated squabbling among conservatives, the paleos versus the neos, the socials against the moderates, and on and on for as long as he'd been on the Hill, which was most all of his adult life. Ryan had long sought to be the Republican Party's glue, pleading for adherence to principles and data. At times, he looked like the underfed, hollow-eyed child of alcoholic parents. Well, the only way we'll succeed is if we're united, Ryan told the others. If we tear ourselves apart, we're finished. But, he added, he liked what he was hearing now. Everyone at the table sounded like a genuine conservative. It was a place to start. If you act like you're the minority, you're going to stay in the minority, said Kevin McCarthy. We got to challenge them on every single bill and challenge them on every single campaign. That's Kevin McCarthy. Luntz viewed McCarthy as one of the Republican Party's emerging stars, an easygoing, unthreatening guy who understood that language and appearance mattered as much as substance. Nonetheless, the polar and media guru interjected a cautionary note. Uh, One of the worst political performances I've ever seen, he said, was when the Democrats took over the House in 2007 and Nancy Pelosi shut out the Republicans and everyone whined about it. If any of you behave that way, I'll go on TV and hold you accountable. Luntz tended to get carried away, but everyone knew he had a point. Senator John Kyle began to focus on immediate tactics. He pointed out that Tim Geithner, Obama's nominee to be Secretary of the Treasury, had failed to pay his Social Security and Medicare taxes during his three-year employment at the International Monetary Fund. Kyle sat on the Senate Finance Committee, which would be conducting Geithner's confirmation hearings the next morning. The Arizona senator intended to go after the nominee. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the approach I should take, he said to the others. There was a pattern here, Gingrich pointed out. Charlie Rangel, the House Ways and Means Committee chairman, hadn't paid taxes on his rental property income in more than two decades. Randall and Geithner would be wielding more power over how taxpayer dollars would be spent than anyone else in America. And then there's the web, chimed in McCarthy. There are freshmen who accept campaign money from Rangel. They're caught in the web. McCarthy suggested that they waste no time smacking down the New Democrats for the tack ads. The dinner lasted nearly four hours. They parted company almost giddily. The Republicans had finally agreed on a way forward. Go after Geithner, and indeed Kyle did the next day. Would you answer my question rather than dancing around it, please? Show united and unyielding opposition to the president's policies. Eight days later, Minority Whip Cantor would hold the House Republicans to a unanimous no against Obama's economic stimulus plan. Begin attacking vulnerable Democrats on the airwaves. The first Democratic National Republican Congressional Committee attacks would run in fewer than two months. Win the spear point of the House in 2010. Jab Obama relentlessly in 2011. Win the White House and the Senate in 2012. You will remember this day, Newt Gingrich proclaimed to the others as they said goodbye. You'll remember this as the day the seeds of 2012 were were sown. Well, not so much, but I'd say that this is when the seeds of 2016 were sown. Forgotten or at least not discussed that night in the caucus room was what had been sown in America by January 20th, 2009. That was the day the meeting happened, the day that President Obama was sworn into office. On that evening, while the ruling party celebrated in tuxedos and the minority party retrenched over steaks and red wine, U.S. unemployment rate had climbed to 7.6%, the highest such indicator of national misery in 18 years. Things could get much worse. Joblessness in America would exceed 8% the following month. By May 2009, the number would climb to 9.4%, and by October, to 10.2%. And it goes on. It's a great book. Zach in North Hollywood. Hey, Zach, what's on your mind today? You know what people need to have under their belt going into this election? What they need to understand is... If we had all the revenue sucked out of the taxpaying middle class for the last 70 years via wage suppression, tax avoidance, and oil subsidies 
given to the 1%, that's a real number. I would love for somebody to do a study on that and come up with that number. I mean, I think we'd all be driving flying cars by now yeah. if that hadn't happened. I mean, the promise of the 60s would have been a reality, the Jetsons and all that. But think of, and just think of all the capital and revenue that's just been burned up funding elections, for instance, alone, you know. But there is a real number associated with what I call the one, two, three punch. Wage suppression, tax avoidance, and oil subsidies given to the 1%. I can't speak to oil subsidies, but everything else, that number seems to be around $50 trillion since the uh, mid to late 1970s or, or 1980, basically. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And there was a piece published that did all the math on that about, what, three weeks ago? I did a riff about it here on this program. Yeah, it looks like roughly over the last 40 years, $50 trillion has been taken out of the pockets, out of the homes, out of the home equity, out of the value of the assets of the American working class and transferred into the hands, pockets, banks, money bins and foreign accounts, foreign banking accounts of the top 5%. And, and most of the top one. And they, and they still want to clip you for a trillion and a half dollar tax cut. Yeah. 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 Well, and they want to do more. I mean, they're talking about more tax cuts. You know, that if Trump gets reelected, the first thing he's going to do is cut taxes even more. Daniel, who's listening on KBCS, non commercial station, which carries our show in Shoreline, Washington. Hey, Daniel, what's up? The other day on Facebook, you posted something about Reagan, how he had dropped the uh, highest income tax rate from, I think it was 78 or something to 24 percent. and uh, 74 to 25. 25, yeah. And they kind of insinuated that this was the demise of the middle class. I was trying to explain that to my wife. She has this thing about if you raise the tax rate too high, nobody has an incentive to work. I was wondering if you could give me a little primer on that. Uh, yes, if people are taxed at 100%, nobody's going to work. <laughs> that, 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 that makes common sense. But the, number one, the, the first thing that most people miss in this whole debate, and it's intentional, the billionaires want you to miss it, is that we have a progressive graduated tax system. So, right. you know, if you're making five or ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars a year, you pay very little in income taxes. You pay you make thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, you pay a little bit in income taxes. Making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, now you're starting to pay a little more in income taxes. You make a million, two million, three million dollars a year, and now you're paying thirty seven percent. And back in the mm-hmm. day, if it was over three million dollars a year, back when Reagan came into office, you would have been paying seventy four percent, which is where you know uh, Lyndon Johnson put it in nineteen sixty seven. It used to be ninety one percent. Didn't mean that those rich people who were making $3 million a year stopped working. What it meant was they stopped taking any more than $3 million a year. And, you know, because above that, the taxes were essentially confiscatory. And so what did they do? You know, since they're not taking that money out of their companies, they used, they kept that money in the company. They paid their workers better. They developed new products. They expanded their business. Um, they, you know, they cleaned up their act. I mean, they did the things that companies used to do before the Reagan era. Now, companies don't do any of those things. They're, you know, American workers haven't gotten a raise since 1981. In fact, the average worker has seen their wages go down, inflation adjusted. It's the average household income. When you, when you Google this stuff, and it gets particularly deceptive when you, you know, kick around uh, Wikipedia and whatnot. But basically, the average household income is about where it was when Reagan came into office. But the average household has more than two people working in it, whereas back in 1980, it was 1.2 or 1.3 people working in the average household. So wages have actually gone down. The other thing is that for working class people, for rich people, when taxes are cut, their money, their, their after, you know, the money that they take home actually goes up because they control how much they get paid. But for working people, when taxes are cut, their wages will go down over the next few years because they're now taking home more money. And the labor market is a take-home money market. It's a post-tax market. So, you know, if you're making 30 grand a year and your employer knows that you're taking home 25 as a result of that and you get a tax cut, so now you're taking home 27, your employer is going to figure out a way over the next three years to lower your income by $2,000 or hire somebody, you know, with a take-home pay of 25000 which might now be 28000 in pay, um, because that's the new definition of what the marketplace will bear, basically, the labor marketplace. 
So as taxes go down on working people, so do wages. And as taxes go up on working people, wages go up too. On the science revolution this week, there is more news from the Republican death cult. We need to start calling things what they are. The Republican Party is a death cult. Ryan Felton drops by on why dangerous forever chemicals are still allowed in America's drinking water. Professor Richard Wolff will be talking about how and why capitalism failed to protect us from COVID-19. And in geeky science, Trump makes the case for Medicare for all. Tune in for the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think the American public is so gaslighted, you know, by decade after decade of lies, of distortions, and a lot of money in politics. And, you know, Senator Whitehouse really pointed that out when he used his time when talking with the Judiciary Commission on Amy Coney Barrett's, you know, nomination. He pointed out all of the dark money that comes from these various organizations. And the latest little dark money trick is to the Barrington Declaration that was bought and paid for by the Koch brothers. And so I'm not surprised. I mean, and that is working to try to interfere what's going on in Harvard, at Stanford, at Oxford, all of these large institutions. So, you know, it's hard for people to really wrap their whole head around following all of this and just either totally become numb, I would say, in a state of despair, or they actually buy into it or they follow the propaganda. This is how the Soviet Union maintained power despite all of the evidence to the opposite. They were doing really badly. They couldn't deliver any of the consumer goods. They weren't they didn't deliver the the promised revolution to the, you know, proletariat, but yet they were still able to maintain uh, power and it's very easy to do and, you know, the John, 19, let me the let me 20th, tell you what I think is going on here. I think you might be missing something. Charles uh, Koch and his libertarian billionaire buddies have been on a Jeremiad since the 1970s, particularly since the 1980s, saying that government, particularly a regulatory government, the government's power to stop their refineries from poisoning people downwind is an illegitimate power. The government should not have that kind of power. And they have succeeded in, in gutting, in many regards, government's power in that regard. They're nowhere close to their goal of, of I mean, they, in 1980, they called for completely eliminating the Environmental Protection Agency. So now we've got a national public health crisis. And on one side, you've got, you know, Democrats, some Republicans, good government people, and just rational scientists saying, now is when the government has a responsibility to step in and regulate yep. our activities to save lives. And these yep. libertarians are like, oh, my God, this is going to bring back big government. This is going to give if, if the big government stops this this virus, it's going to give credibility to the idea of big government intervention. And they're scared to death of that. Back to you. Jim. That's correct. And, you know, this dysfunction is just destroying the very fabric of this society. And it's not, you know, happening in other social democracies like just north of us, right. uh, Sweden, Denmark, Germany. You know, they all have Canada. some of these same issues, but not to the extent that we do. And this is because we believe in neoliberalism as a religion. And, and the Koch brothers are yeah. its uh, biggest supporters. Yes. Yeah, neoliberalism being, you know, deregulation and destruction. Well, as Steve Bannon said, you know, our job, the Trump administration's job, is to deconstruct the administrative state. In other words, destroy the American government from within. Steve Bannon just came right out and said it. John, thank you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, we have a special video up over at TomHartman.com. And it's about how FDR in 1944, January 44, in his State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like the, most of the governments of Europe have done. And this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And... It is uh, a strange time, to say the very least. And Pat Robertson is doing his very best to make it even stranger. The uh, televangelist, who is worth a billion dollars because he built a multi, multi, multi-million dollar television evangelism business. You know, I call it a business because it's a nonprofit. You and I have been subsidizing Pat Robertson his entire career, his entire lifetime. And uh, he's still doing this show. He's 90 years old. And uh, he's still doing the 700 Club, which I guess, you know, is kind of a, a testimonial to persistence, if nothing else. And he uh, said that uh, Trump is going to, he, he's certain Trump is going to win the election on November 3rd. And then comes the end of the world. Yes. Oh, boy. Well, hey, he's 90 years old. It's like, yeah, the world's going to end. Yeah. Well, the world's definitely going to end for him sooner than it probably will for most of us. But... Anyhow, he's be, back in 1976, he was forecasting that the world would end in October of 1982. He ran that train for six years, 
did the world didn't end. And so then in 1990, he said the world's going to end on April 29th, 2007. And, you know, that got him 17 years, 17 good years in there and built his his empire, his uh, his whole televangelism thing. And now he's saying, we've never seen the like of it before, but I want to relate to you again. There is going to be a war. Ezekiel 38 is going to be the next thing down the line. I'm saying, by all means, get out and vote. You ask what's going to happen next. That's what's going to happen next. Vote for whoever you want to vote for, but let your voice be heard. It's going to lead to civil unrest and then a war against Israel and so forth. I think it's time to pray. Yeah, I'm starting to think it's time to pray, too. You know, people are like, you know, you've got all these consultants and political pundits and whatnot, and they're on MSNBC and CNN going, I can't figure out what Trump is doing. Why is he running around taking pot shots at Anthony Fauci? Everybody loves Anthony Fauci. Why would he say that? That's political suicide. He's ruining the Republican Party. Trump doesn't give a rat's ass about the Republican Party. And the Republican Party is starting to figure this out. John Cornyn is like, it's like, uh, you know, a bad marriage, right? You know, you marry somebody and you think you can change them and then you discover you can't. And Ben Sass, you know, just, you know, peeling the bark off Trump. I tweeted this morning to Ben Sass, actually to at Senator Sass, saying, you know, if you want to show some real political courage, become the third Republican vote to block Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. I doubt he's going to do it. But I thought I'd toss it out there. I haven't looked at Twitter since I posted that. I'll have to check it out. But people are like, you know, why is Trump doing this? Why is he doing these super spreader events? Why is he going into these various cities and having people pack in as densely as possible? Well, because, I mean, number one, he still has some small hope that he can win the election. Right? I mean, he still has this small hope that it's possible he can win the election. And so his plan, or part of the plan, is, you know, this is the Trump chaos 101. Part of the plan is just, if you can terrify the Democrats and reassure the Republicans with regard to the virus, then the Democrats won't show up to vote and the Republicans will. So if uh, Trump is thinking, if I can hold a big rally in Tucson, Arizona, and pack people in wall to wall, and all that stuff goes up on television then all of the people who watch on Fox News, all the hardcore followers, they'll say, oh, well, it must not be such a big deal. Look at that. There's a thousand people who realize it's not a big deal. And Trump is the leader of this. So, uh, you know, it's not a big deal for me. I've noticed just here in Portland, Louise and I have noticed in the last, I'd say, two weeks, the percentage of people not wearing masks that we pass on public streets and on various trails and paths that we walk every day when we take our two-mile walk. And by the way, if you're not walking at least a mile every day, you are doing a huge disservice to your body and mind. Uh, But anyhow, the number of people without masks has probably doubled in two weeks. And I think it's because of these things. I mean, Trump is setting an example. So anyhow, there's this bar owner in Wisconsin, Mark Schultz, And he hosted a Donald Trump Jr. event in his bar, and now he's in the ICU. And he said, you know, I don't worry about much about me, but I got a 10-year-old son and my fiance. That's what I care about. My family, they're all at home. They're all worried about me. Speaking of Donald Trump, he says, I just want to punch him. I always had to keep my politics to myself, but from where I'm sitting now in the ICU, those days are over. I shouldn't be here. Donald Trump Jr., who himself had COVID, you'll recall, a few weeks ago, came to this bar and did a super spreader event. Now the owner of the bar is in the ICU in Wisconsin. Well, here's the thing. As part of Trump's math on this, as part of his equation on this, the people who are going to get sick from the super spreader events and the people who are going to die for over the next two weeks from these events, they're not going to show up for weeks, for a month. Tom Hartman program. It'll be three, four, five weeks before you start seeing the hospital admissions start going up. It'll be eight or nine weeks before you start seeing the deaths. He's just betting on that. Our book today is The America Syndrome, Apocalypse, War, and Our Call to Greatness by Betsy Hartman. No relation. This is from the introduction, End Times and Endless War. According to opinion polls, a staggering percentage of Americans accept that the world will end in a battle in Armageddon. In a 2010 Pew poll, 41% of respondents said they expect Jesus Christ to return to the earth by 2050. 
Two years later, a Reuters poll found that over one-fifth of the American population believe the end of the world will happen in their lifetime, as compared to 6% in France, 7% in Belgium, and 8% in Great Britain. Another recent poll by the Public Religion Research Institute reported that 49% of Americans think that natural disasters are a sign of the end times. In the months before the purported December 2, 2012 Mayan apocalypse, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, received so many inquiries from children and adults terrified that a rogue planet might crash into the Earth or that the sun might explode that it set up a special web page to allay their fears. The page received over 4.5 million views. On December 22, NASA posted a video it had made in advance why the world didn't end yesterday. Of all the intertwining reasons for our apocalyptic disposition, reasons I explore in this book, the one that stands out most starkly is our acceptance of the necessity and inevitability of war. In the same 2010 Pew study, 6 out of 10 Americans saw another world war as definite or probable by 2050. This expectation of war isn't surprising given that Americans' apocalyptic images and beliefs are derived mainly from Christianity, especially the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, which, above all, is about the grotesque violence and crowning glories of war. The book of Revelation is wartime literature. Its author, John, is thought to have been deeply affected by the Roman army's attacks on Judea and its siege and sacking of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. John himself was banished to the Greek island of Patmos by Roman rulers around 95. In John's macabre vision of the end times, a fourth of the earth is wiped out, a third of the trees, green grass, and sea creatures are extinguished, and a third of the world's water is poisoned. There are terrible earthquakes, fires, and plagues. Four demons kill a third of all humankind. The whore of Babylon, a symbol of evil and carnal lust, is assaulted by the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which strips her naked, eats her flesh, and burns her with fire. Toward the end of the book of Revelation, the Savior, with eyes like a flame of fire, faithful and true, rides out on a white horse to lead the armies of heaven in battle. He is, quote, clothed with the vestiture dripping in blood, end quote, and on him are written the words, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords, end quote. He holds a sword in his mouth to smite the nations so that he can preside over them with a rod of iron and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In the final judgment, the dead are brought back to life, but those judged to be sinners by their deeds are thrown, along with the devil and death itself, into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, where they meet the second death of eternal suffering. Fortunate, then, are those who are judged worthy to live on in the New Jerusalem, a city with streets of gold, gates of pearls, and walls inlaid with gems. There is no need for the sun or moon, since God and the Lamb are the light, and from their throne flows the pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, that nourishes the fruits of the tree of life. This promise of a new Jerusalem for the elect, and the cataclysmic violence against people and nature necessary to achieve that goal, has made the book of Revelation an ideological tool of conquest and empire from the Crusades onwards. You don't have to be a Christian to be susceptible to John's logic that the perfect end, the new Jerusalem, justifies a bloody means. Despite the official separation of church and state, religious axioms thread through the fabric of American political culture. Historian Robert Bella coined the term civil religion to describe the religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share that a higher authority guides human affairs, that American history follows a providential path, that Americans are special and exceptional, a chosen people obliged to carry out God's will or else suffer dire consequences, are widely held to be self-evident truths. So, too, is the belief that war is divinely justified. The Civil War marked a watershed in the evolution of our civil religion. As it metastasized into a total war that targeted civilian populations as well as soldiers, estimates of the war deaths have recently been revised upwards to three-quarters of a million people. Leaders and clergy on both sides invoked divine authority to justify that slaughter. Quote, Many saw in the unprecedented destruction of lives and property something mystical taking place, writes historian Harry Stout, what we might today call the birthing of a fully functional, truly national American civil religion. Patriotism became a sacred duty, as important as adherence to a traditional faith, maybe more so. Civil war deaths created a republic of suffering in which sacrifice and the state became inextricably intertwined. 
World War I brought about a major reaffirmation of the civil religion. The nation's turn away from isolationism to global intervention was accompanied by hyperbole about its starring role as world redeemer in a continuing war between good and evil around the globe. President Woodrow Wilson complained, the world must be made safe for democracy. The book, The America Syndrome, by Betsy Hartman. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Greg, in New London, Connecticut. Hey, Greg, what's up? Yes, I just want to know why are the Democrats giving up all their leverage? If we're on the verge of losing our democracy, if there are threats of sedition from the attorney general, why are we giving up our leverage as it relates to the debt ceiling? Why aren't we holding that hostage until we get the post office straightened out, our stimulus package done, and get them to stop violating federal law. I don't understand. And this is a story no one's talking about. And no one's bringing this leverage up. And why aren't we using it? Well, because we're way over raising the debt limit. And so they're just automatically building those raises into each piece of legislation. It's because this is a time of emergency. And Greg, to do that would be to play into the Republican, you know, I mean, for 50 years now, Republicans have behaved as if, you know, the debt ceiling is some sort of sacrosanct thing and disaster is going to happen if our debt goes above a certain point. It's been a lie for 50 years. And I think Democrats are just tired of playing into that lie. Thanks for the call. Jeff in Tippin, Ohio. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, I agree with virtually everything you say. But one thing I I haven't heard on any talk shows is about Trump's military record. And, you know, I was in the military. And the big thing about me when I was in the military is I was government property. If I went to a bar and got in a fight and got hurt and I couldn't show up for my duty, I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. Same way with getting sick somehow. You know what I'm saying? He Here he is, the commander-in-chief of our United States forces, and he's got the, the finger on the button for a the nuclear launch or whatever, and he's mm-hmm. getting sick. And it's his own fault. So yeah. I would have done that, done that in the Navy if I got hurt. I'd have got busted. I got a stripe taken away. I'd have got fined, you know, all that stuff. And there he is. He's getting sick, and he's leading the military. And you don't have any military people coming out and saying that was wrong, him getting sick. Yeah, not only has he gotten sick, but he has apparently spread this disease to other people. And I think the it depends on whether these multimillionaires and billionaires that he met with in Bedminster, New Jersey, are willing to take on Donald Trump. But I'm guessing probably most of them are well north of 50 years old, probably many of them well north of 60 and even 70 years old, because typically to amass enough money that you can pay a quarter million dollars to go to a presidential fundraiser, you know, it takes a lifetime or it takes a lot of years. And if one of them gets sick and one of them dies, then even if that person you know, who is loyal to Trump doesn't want to talk about it, their family may well want to talk about it, and they may have some sort of a legal cause of action against Donald Trump. I mean, I, I can't say that for sure because he's protected by sovereign immunity to a certain extent, the decisions that he makes. But this was, he was not there as president of the United States. He was there as candidate Trump. This was a fundraiser, not a public event. So I think that it might be possible for a good lawyer to puncture that and go after Donald Trump. Now, that doesn't get to your issue of the military, Jeff. And I'm hearing the polling that I'm seeing, and there's not a lot of it coming out of the military. But basically, the officer corps has been opposed to Donald Trump for a long, long time. And right now, you've got, among the enlisted corps, men and women, it's increasing. The the opposition is increasing. But, you know, what's your sense of how the military, or are, are you no longer connected to your military buddies? 
No, I, I was a union member, and I'm retired. I'm about 66, but it was, I don't talk, but I talk to veterans, and it just amazes me how none of these veterans, like in northwest Ohio here, are, a lot of them think Trump is great yet, and there he deferments to stay out of Vietnam and uh, never had his foot operated on and calling our soldiers losers and suckers and all and the bounty on the you know that just that irritates me and it should irritate everybody yeah, well, I, I agree it reflects the tribalism that has that has happened to our politics as a result of the stakes going up so high jeff thanks a lot for the call it's great to hear from you and thank you for being with us today we'll be back tomorrow same time same place in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport it requires you so please check your voter registration at IWillVote.com and get as many people as you can to make sure that they're registered to vote and vote if it's the time to do it in your state. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and others. Tag your it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 